Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14, the text we're looking at now, verses 13 through 19, is really a continuation of what we looked at last time, but it adds new insight and new understanding to the subject. We're still dealing with the fact that the church is a community of people who are mixed in maturity, that in every church, at least every healthy church, there's going to be people who are strong in faith side by side with people who are weak in faith and also people who have no faith at all because the gospel is calling people into community with Christ. Now, that presents challenges to us, as we saw last time. And Paul says that in that challenge, in the midst of those differences, we're called to mutual forbearance. We must bear with one another, not quarrel over these differences, but go out of our way to, as it were, tolerate one another, even when the people we're called to tolerate are objectively wrong. We're still called to be kind and hospitable towards them. As we continue in our text, we'll see the way that this call to mutual forbearance, there's actually more to it than just forbearance. There's something more that Paul intends for us. So hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let us not pass judgments on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know And am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So, do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Father, we pray that these words would quicken us and guide us to go to the very heart of our condition Show us the way that you would have us live. In Christ's name, amen. We're talking about the pursuit of peace this morning, how to pursue peace. And peace is not something we're accustomed to pursuing. What we tend to pursue is something a little bit different, freedom. We're anxious to pursue freedom. But the pursuit of freedom alone will not lead to peace. There's been a lot of talk during the course of the pandemic about freedom, about the limits of freedom, about our rights and where those rights uh, end, and a lot of anxiety expressed over these questions. It's understandable that religious Americans will be concerned by anything that threatens the curtailments of the free exercise of religion. That makes sense. At the same time, though, there's a problem because 
this anxiety that we often have about freedom, about the idea that our freedom is being curtailed, that our freedom is being taken away, leads us, when we think about freedom, to think about freedom mainly in American ways, to think about freedom in political ways. But this morning, we're not going to do that. This morning, we're going to think about freedom and the pursuit of freedom in Pauline ways. We're going to think about freedom in biblical ways, and we will find sometimes there are conflicts between the two. There are situations, according to the Apostle Paul, where asserting your rights and insisting on your freedom, though it might be the American thing to do, is not the Christ-like thing to do. That can be challenging. If you were to go out onto the streets and do these like man-on-the-street interviews where you just walk up to people and ask them random questions, and you were to ask them, what is freedom? Or more specifically, where does freedom stop? What is the limit of your freedom? The kind of answers that you would hear, interestingly, would probably all fall into the same category, regardless of where the people that you, you walked up to are on like the political spectrum. When we talk about freedom, we all tend to talk about it in very similar sorts of ways. You'll hear people say, well, I'm free to do whatever I want to do so long as it doesn't hurt someone else. I'm free to do whatever I want to do as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. And what is it that hurts someone else? Well, what hurts someone else is infringing on their freedom. So you'll often hear people say things like, well, the, the border of my freedom extends all the way to like the border of somebody else's, or my freedom ends where your freedom begins, something like that, as if we're going through life surrounded by little freedom bubbles. And as long as we don't, uh, we're willing to bounce off one another, but we don't intrude upon the bubble of another, everything is going to be okay. But the Apostle Paul says that when it comes to living the Christian life in relation with other people, you have to take into account something more than their freedom. You have to take into account something more than the rights of other people. You also have to consider the conscience of other people. You have to take into account their conscience, even when they're wrong, even when their conscience has misled them, even when they are weak in faith and weak in conscience, you still have to take into account the dictates of their conscience. As we look at the text, you'll see this idea come through. If we begin in verse 13, you might think of this as kind of a conclusion to what we saw last time. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. We're going to be forbearing towards one another. We're not going to judge one another. We're not going to judge, but not only that, we're going to make a decision that we're not going to sabotage the faith of another. Like We're not going to undermine the faith of another. We're not going to confront or castigate those who are weak for their weakness. Instead, we're going to draw a line and make sure that we do nothing that represents a hindrance to them. So already, a consciousness of the way of another, like a consciousness of where they're at in their faith, we have to take that account into account when living with one another. So Paul says, 
Objectively speaking, nothing is unclean. There's nothing in the world, he says, that is unclean. And he says it emphatically, I know this and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself or, let's say, inherently unclean. And yet, this is the sticker, it can become so if you think it is. Even if it isn't objectively unclean, to those who think it is unclean, it becomes unclean. Which we'll talk about in a moment. Kind of get into the the complexities of conscience, but for now, just keep that in mind, that, that something that is objectively fine can still be sinful, depending on the conscience of the one who does it. And as a result, we have to respect the consciences of other people, even when they've gone astray. Because not to do this is not to love. If, if we're not doing this, we're not loving one another as we should, because love, Paul says, never abuses its freedom to the detriment of another believer. Love never uses freedom as an excuse to do harm to another. That's not the way that love works. You can't excuse your judging, your quarreling, your strife by standing on your freedom or on your rights because you've been called to love one another. When you do this, when you use that freedom, that liberty that we have in Christ as an excuse, you actually bring that freedom into disrepute. You encourage things that are good to be spoken of as evil, and you shouldn't do this. Part of protecting freedom, Paul says, is not abusing it. Using the freedom that we have in Christ as Christ has called us to live. So then Paul says, this is verse 17, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, the eating and drinking that he's talking about are things that are in and of themselves not wrong, not sinful, something that you can do without any sin, and yet also not the priority of the Christian life. In the kingdom of God, eating and drinking matters a lot less than righteousness and peace and joy. If you keep those priorities right, Paul says, then you will live a life pleasing to God, and then you will meet with the approval of men. You may ask yourself, how how is that possible? What, What approval of men would I meet with? Well, the approval of men, both believers and unbelievers, when they recognize that you are foregoing your rights, your freedom for the sake of another, that you are, as we would say, being the bigger person. Like that you could, in all good conscience, as far as you're concerned, do something, but you're not doing it for the sake of another. When human beings see that, human beings made in the image of God, when they recognize that kind of behavior, it resonates. They recognize something right in that kind of sacrifice. What they recognize is a love that transcends self. And that meets with approval, Paul says. So what we're meant to do is not to stand on our rights, not to insist on our freedom. 
at any expense, but rather, in verse 19, to pursue something greater. And that's pursue what makes for peace. And Paul says, mutual upbuilding. And when it comes to peace, when it comes to having peace in life, what all of this should tell you is that conscience matters just as much as freedom does. But if we want to live lives of peace and we want to pursue what makes for peace, then we have to start caring about conscience just as much as we care about freedom, about rights, about liberty. Paul teaches, and this is complicated, that something that is objectively not sinful can still become sinful to one who believes that it is. Now, how is that? How does that work? How can something that is in and of itself good become a sin if I do it? It doesn't make much sense. I mean, if you think about it, it should work something like this. Like you've gone your whole life doing something and you thought it was sinful to do this, but you did it anyway and you felt so terrible about it. And then somebody comes along and says to you, oh, that's not wrong. The apostle Peter, who grew up like like any good Jew, observing all of these dietary restrictions, trying to keep uh, uh, separate in his mind between clean and unclean things, wouldn't it have been awesome if the Holy Spirit had come to him and said, Peter, man, none of that was wrong. All of that was just an illusion. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. And, and that whole life that you lived, all of the times that you, you were eating that bacon in secret, turns out that was fine. There was nothing sinful in it. And when you think about the book of Acts, when, when this revelation comes to Peter and he's told, call no thing unclean that God has made clean, Um, you might think that's what was going on, that Peter discovered that all this stuff he thought was a sin, every time he slipped up and he thought it was a sin, it turns out it wasn't. That's not exactly right. Because every time Peter violated the law of his conscience, he was sinning, even if the thing he was doing objectively wasn't wrong. There are plenty of things like that in our lives today, things that have been forbidden, things that have been called wrong, things the church has pointed to and said, oh, you mustn't do that. It's immoral to do that. And then you say, well, where in Scripture does it say that? And we're like, well, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but it should be obvious. And you think to yourself, well, it turns out all these things I've secretly been doing, there was no sin at all. But it's more complicated. Maybe there was because it is a sin to act against your own conscience even when your conscience is wrong. It's a sin to violate your conscience, even if your conscience is wrong. If you want to live in a sort of black and white, everything is really clear, it's one way or the other, moral universe, Paul saying things like this is making it so much more complicated. But in doing this, he's he's illustrating something about our humanity that matters, that God has given us a conscience, a a kind of internal moral compass, let's say, and even though sin has corrupted it and, and thrown it all over the place, we're still meant to respect it and also to respect it in other people so that if you take delight in getting weak in faith believers who think all this stuff is sinful, but it's really not. If you take delight in corrupting them, getting them over onto the dark side, what you may be doing there is, is, is sinful. It's undermining a, a stumbling block. 
This is difficult to hear for people who, who are delighted in the freedom that we have in Christ. But it's important, nonetheless, to hear it. We sometimes jokingly talk about our denomination, the, the, the PCA, which stands for the Presbyterian Church in America, but as some people will jokingly tell you, it sometimes also stands for pipes, cigars, and alcohol. Because so many people in the PCA have come from somewhere else that was much more restrictive, that had, had let's say, supplemented God's law with a lot of man's law. And there's something delightful about discovering that, that a lot of things you were told were forbidden by Scripture are not, if you read it, actually forbidden. And you can revel in that freedom to an extent that is uh, sinful. Because it doesn't take into account the consciences of others. Now, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul gives this context uh, more clearly in talking about this, this debate about eating meat offered to idols. This is a parallel passage, the one that we're looking at, but Paul goes deeper into the details, and you can see how conscience works here. So this is 1 Corinthians 8. We'll start in verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. Some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge... Eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble." This is coming from Paul, who believes fervently in the liberty that we have in Christ. Paul, who says to exercise that liberty is a sign of strong faith, not weak. But at the same time, he cautions us against doing anything that violates or or leads the weak in faith to violate their own conscience. If you look in Daniel chapter 1, you'll understand where some of these scruples come from. When Daniel and his friends are sent into Babylonian exile in the household of the king, they're going to be educated to become magi when they grow up. Remember what Daniel and his friends commit with one another and to God not to do? Not to eat the meat or drink the, the wine offered to them in the king's household because it's offered to idols and they don't want to stain themselves or defile themselves, right? So Paul is speaking to people who who thinking of that example of the prophet Daniel are trying to live what they believe are holy lives. And in the process, maybe investing too much reality in these, these mythical pagan gods. 
And yet, that conscience has to be taken into account. The strong, in other words, cannot just let the weak fend for themselves. Instead, the strong in faith have to take into account the weak in the exercise of the knowledge they have in Christ. This is what love looks like. And when you recognize this, it will change your attitude towards the weak. The last time we saw that the strong should not despise the weak. Those who are strong in faith ought not to despise the weak. But here you see the strong have an obligation to care for, to look out for the conscience of the weak. In other words, don't flaunt your freedom. Don't flaunt your knowledge. Instead, use that freedom and use that knowledge to do something else, to do something greater. And what? What should we do with it? The answer is to pursue what makes for peace. Pursue what makes for peace. Now, in the book of Romans, you're familiar perhaps with what they call the Romans Road, which is a little chain of of verses that walk through the basics of the gospel. I'm going to share with you another Romans Road, a Romans Road to Peace. Because throughout the book of Romans, as we've studied it over the last two years, we have seen little hints here and there of a path of peace that Paul is now calling to our attention. Go all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 17. In talking about the unrighteous, those who do not know Christ, Paul says the way of peace they have not known. The unrighteous do not know peace. But then if you skip ahead to Romans 5, verse 1, you see that those who are justified by faith now have peace with God through Christ. Paul writes in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that peace is a kind of um, relationship between us and our Creator. It doesn't necessarily speak to uh, peace in this life. But there is also a peace in this life that Romans speak of, a peace that comes in sanctification. In Romans 8, verse 6, Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. There is a peace in the spirit that we are called to, and that peace is the essence of the kingdom, as we see in our text here, Romans 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the way to pursue peace, here in verse 19 at the end of our passage, is actually to go beyond the mutual forbearance that we saw last time to something that Paul calls mutual upbuilding. He says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. It turns out that for Paul, the thing that we're called to do in this Christian community is to build one another up. And building up the weak in faith leads to peace. Building up the weak will bring the strong peace. That word up building is a little bit awkward in English. We don't use that term very often. It's a translation of a Greek word, oikodomes, uh, which is a combination of, of the Greek word oikos, which probably some of you at least will have heard or remembered having to do with a house or a household, and also doma, which is a house as well. So oikodomes, 
is the word that's translated here as upbuilding. Sometimes in other translations, this word is, is translated as edification. Now, both of those English terms, even though they're uncommon in everyday usage, they're good words to translate this Greek word. Because as you can hear in the Greek, that word has within it this idea of houses or households. And in English, we have that as an upbuilding, has building in it. Edification has edifice in it. They suggest what they are. They're, they're building up a structure. They're building up a house. They're building up a dwelling place. To let us pursue what makes for mutual upbuilding means something like let us direct our knowledge and our freedom, our energy into the kind of thing that will build up each other's households, that will build up a sense of community. So we're called to do something sort of like barn raisings in the old days where all the neighbors get together and they go house to house and they erect someone's barn on their behalf rather than, than just staying on our property and insisting on, on the limits of our property. We're meant to rove onto the property of others and build them up, build up their houses, build up their households. That's what Jesus did. That's how Jesus pursued peace. If you look once again at that passage in Philippians that we read earlier in the service in our lectionary reading, Philippians chapter 2, it's surprising how those words echo these. Remember, in both cases, in Philippians 2 and in Romans 14, Paul is actually alluding to or quoting the words of the prophet Isaiah. He talks about every knee bowing and every tongue confessing. But notice the context in which he places that statement in Philippians and here, the context has to do with this regard for one another, a humility that leads me to put you ahead of me, that leads the strong to take into account the weak. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, Paul writes, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus has set an example for us. Out of love for us, Jesus set limits on his own freedom, on his own rights. He emptied himself. He set them aside so that he could become one of us, which was a humiliation, a step down for him. He sacrificed himself so that we might know peace. All that he did, he did the work of upbuilding building us up, building our houses, building us into a household of faith is what Christ did and what Christ calls us to do after him. It's true that in Christ we have unimaginable freedom. But like every gift that Christ has given us, he has given it to us so that we might have something to give to others. The gifts that he gives us are not meant to be hoarded They're not meant to be used only for ourselves. The gifts that he gives us are meant to be used for his glory 
by building up one another. Jesus has already shown us how to use our knowledge, how to use our gifts, how to use our strength, and yes, even our freedom, to use it to build the body, to use it to build up one another, not only to, to tolerate one another, but also to actively build up one another, to edify one another, whether we're right or wrong, whether our consciences are strong or weak, wherever we're at in that way that the Holy Spirit has brought us into, we're here to build one another up. Without regard to any of those factors, we build one another up, not because we're worthy of it, but because we are Christ's. And if Christ is our Lord, how can we judge one another? How can we not invest in one another? Now, the life of peace, like the peace that you yearn for, the peace that religion so often promises, it doesn't come by the means people think. If you ask people, how do you gain spiritual peace? The answer you'll usually get is going to involve a lot of isolation, a lot of meditation, probably going on to some literal or at least metaphorical mountaintop away from all of the distracting people so that you can focus on you and God. And there you will find peace. But Paul is pointing to a very different reality. You won't find peace in isolation. You won't find peace there. You'll find peace with one another. You will find peace in the work of building one another up. The life of peace is a product of the work of upbuilding. It comes when the strong forget themselves and use their strength to put the weak first. Jesus has shown us this in his own life. He's called us to live this way as well. And if we don't have peace, if peace is absent in our faith, maybe it's because we are not following him as we have been called to do, and we are not spending ourselves in this work of mutual upbuilding. So let's do it. As a church community, as a body in Christ, nothing stands in our way. Whatever we have done in the past, let us turn a corner and let us care for one another. Let us build one another up. Let us build a household of faith together. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.